Uh, a few weeks ago, I talked about how God has this way sometimes of presenting us with opportunities to become practitioners of all the things that we talk about, all the things that we preach. And I have the unique distinction of actually formally preaching, which makes these opportunities all the more pronounced to me in my head and in my heart. And so that doesn't mean that I want to do what I preach any more than you necessarily want to do what I preach. But it means that when I spend 20 hours or so a week preparing and thinking about these things, those, those thoughts that I've been thinking have a funny way of staying with you. They stay with you through everything. And so, you know, as we talked about loving our enemies a few weeks ago, we encounter these words at the, at the end of Luke chapter 6, where Jesus says, you know, the one who hears my words and does not put them into, into practice is kind of like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. And the moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. And so it's like me going, all right, Jesus, so what you're saying is like, I don't get to just stand up here and say this stuff. You actually expect me to do it too, right? And that's, that's sometimes a little bit hard for me because as I concluded last week's message, I mentioned that somebody before they ever got home last week was going to be confronted with a choice that when they encounter someone uh, who's hurting in their midst, maybe someone homeless or whatever, uh, they would have a choice of whether they were going to pass by on the other side, just like the priest from last week or the Levite from last week uh, in, the, in the study of the parable of the Good Samaritan, or would they engage that person's pain by loving their neighbor in the same exact way that they would love themselves? So it was a call for action plus compassion plus what? Do you remember? Empathy. All right, you get a free pass. It's, you know, it's like the spring forward thing. We get a free pass. Action plus compassion plus empathy. In other words, it's not just about doing the right thing, action, but it's also about doing it with the right heart, right. compassion, right? And it's, it's because you, you've, you've paused long enough to place yourself in their shoes and to see this from their perspective. And we call that empathy, empathy. Uh, and so we called that the vantage point from the, do you remember last week? The vantage point from the ditch. That's where the man in the parable of the Good Samaritan was laying. He's in the ditch. So all that to say, uh, Wednesday this week, I'm home. I'm working on this message right now. And because, as I mentioned, we're getting ready to move, our grocery game's a little bit light at home. And so I think to myself, I'm hungry. We have nothing here at the house. And so I'm going to shoot down the hill really fast and go grab me some chicken tacos from El Pollo Loco. Sounded pretty good, sounded like a good idea. I pull into El Pollo Loco, get ready to get in the drive-through, and as, as I'm pulling in, I notice a woman sitting on the curb, enjoying the shade. She's, she's clearly a homeless woman. And I think to myself, well, bummer, there's a homeless woman there. I wish I had time to stop, but, as I'm working on the sermon, I'm busy right now, I'm busy. And so mentally, I wish her well, and I get in the drive-through, and I prepare to wait. But there's a problem. You see, it's busy in this drive-through, and that drive-through line is really, really long, which means, you know how there's like, the drive-through has a curb on either side, and once you're in it, you're fully committed. But the line was so long, I wasn't fully committed yet. And God starts doing all these things in my head. And before you know it, I have this like little Josh angel, little Josh devil that show up on my shoulders. And we have a little discussion right here in the drive-through line. One guy says, ah, oh, you're really busy. Ah, but she's in need. 
go, oh, you know, you have to get your stuff done. She'll be fine. And then the bombshell drops. I remember last week's message. Empathy is found, what? When we hit the ground. Yeah. Empathy is found when we hit the ground, which is another way of saying, if you're going to show compassion for someone, you got to be close to them. You got to be in proximity to them. You can't do it from a distance. You can't pass by on the other side. So here I am convicted by my own sermon. I, I take a deep breath. I pull my car into the closest parking spot. And it's like, fine, God, I'll, I'll, I'll buy her some food. So I walk up to her. I say, hey, can, can I buy you some food or something? She said, I'll, I'll take a taco. It's okay, fine, I'll buy you a taco. She's like, you, you want some money to pay for it? I said, no, I'm, I'm good. I, I got you covered. So I go inside, I, I get the tacos, and I come back out. Like, I've taken the action, right? I've done the nice charitable thing. I bought a homeless woman tacos. But as I'm walking uh, to her in the parking lot, my stupid sermon is just in my head, rattling around at war with me, because I, I know there's more to this equation than just taking action. Because I realize if all I do is walk up to her and give her a taco and nothing else. Like, I've done the right thing, right? But I've done it for all the wrong reasons. And so I, I, I get to make myself feel good, but this woman remains completely unknown to me. She's a stranger to me. So the Holy Spirit is working on me and working on me and working on me. And before you know it, I'm sitting there on a curb in the shade with a woman named Colleen, who's lived on the streets of Hayward for two or three years. I got a chance to tell her about my family. I got to hear about her family and her background. And I walked away from that conversation after 30 or 40 minutes, completely blessed, completely blessed. And I got to tell you, it's not because I'm pious. It's not because, oh, look at me, I did the right thing. Like, it's not about that at all. But in my action, the Holy Spirit revealed to me a path toward compassion, a path toward empathy. And it totally changed my day. Because you want to know why? God has a funny sense of humor. He wasn't done with me yet. Uh, dinner time. Our grocery game is still light. Uh, my, my kids are with me now. It's time to take them out for dinner. We go to Panda Express. And as I go to walk in the door, there's a man holding a sign asking for help. I'm like, God, I've already done this deed for the day. I'm good. I've met my quota. Leave me alone. But no, I, I take action. Can I get you anything? Yeah, I'll take some chow mein and some rice and some teriyaki chicken. Okay, cool. So now I'm with my kids. I have every opportunity to walk inside, get him his chow mein and rice and chicken, and bring it out to him and wish him well. But the Holy Spirit just keeps working on me and working on me. And I find myself asking myself, okay, God, what does compassion and empathy look like now? And so I, I think about it. I pray about it. I go outside. I hand him his meal. And I think, okay, what, what does it look like to love him as I love myself? And so I find myself asking him, hey, like, I'm Josh. He says, I'm Pierre. So what's up, Pierre? Like, would you, would you be willing to come inside and just eat this with us? Just join my kids and I and sit down at a table? And he should have seen him light up, man. He was so thrilled. And so he came inside. He sat down with us at a table. And for 30 or 40 minutes, he just spent that time talking about himself and his family and got to tell him a little bit about my family and I heard about the six heart attacks he's had and the two strokes he's had that have left him disabled and unable to work. I found out he was not a homeless man, but by the time he pays his rent every month, he has no money left over whatsoever to feed himself. And so I got to, he, this is what he does every day. He gets up and he, he goes and asks for help because he has no way of feeding himself. 
And I don't share these stories with you because I want to, to be seen as anything. I don't want you to look at me and go, ah, oh, man, Josh, you did such a good job. Because it wasn't that at all. Because I know for at least part of that time, my heart was not in the right place. I didn't want to do anything that I was actually doing. But when I asked myself what loving them like I would love me looked like, it was, it was pretty obvious that there were two things. It was food and friendship. Um, I, they needed food and they needed friendship. They needed somebody to care about them. And so neither of these people really wanted anything materially from me except for a, a warm meal. And the first one offered to pay for it herself, you know. Um, but maybe for one day the Holy Spirit used me to help them feel a little less invisible. Or maybe the Holy Spirit used them to teach me a little something about compassion and empathy so that I had the opportunity to actually practice what I stand up here in front of you all and say every Sunday. We need those opportunities to practice what we preach, church. And so I, I just wanted to share with you that because I want you to know that it's hard for me to. It is hard for me to. It, it's not something that I want to do just because I teach it. And yet, when we get past ourselves and when we deny ourselves, we come away more blessed as the giver than as the recipient. We know this. There's cliche phrases about that, right? Like, oh, it's more blessed to give to receive. No. Church, I'm here to tell you we will never regret, ever regret, having loved someone like Christ loved us. Amen. And Satan is going to stand there and he's going to try to convince you every day that you will regret that eight bucks that you just spent to feed someone. You're not going to regret it. And so this week's message is only going to reinforce a little bit more of what, we, of what we've been learning about, if I can speak. And as we get started, I want to invite you to join me in a word of prayer. If you're visiting with us today, one of the things I like to do is, is ask us to consider our physical posture before a holy God, before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So I want to ask everyone here, if you're able, just stand up. Let's stand in God's presence as we get into his word this morning. Father God, we thank you for the blessing that it is to get into your holy word. And sometimes when our hearts go unchecked, Father, I recognize that getting into your word can feel like a chore. It's just something that we do out of obligation, and it's not something that we delight in. It's not something we take joy in. It's not something that we work hard to understand. And so, Father, right now as we get into your story, into your word. Lord, I pray that you would begin to chisel away at us. I pray that you'd begin to reshape our hearts so that we would have a joy and a delight in your word. Father, your, your word is sharper than any double-edged sword and it cuts right to the heart. It opens us up, Father, and it, and it reveals what is inside us for you to see and for us to see. And it allows us to see ourselves more clearly and through your eyes, Father. And I pray, Lord, that as we, we jump in today, that we would have the courage to look internally and see what you're doing in us, to see the life-giving force that Jesus is and how redeemed we are by the grace that Jesus gives. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be in this place. I pray that you would speak through me, and I pray that you would give us ears to hear, Father. Amen. Bless this time. In Jesus' holy name, amen. amen. Open your Bibles up, if you would, to Luke chapter 11. And I really encourage you, get a Bible or get an app. If you'd like a paper Bible, there's some over there. But get your Bible open. We're going to be all over Luke chapter 11 today, and I think you'll benefit a lot more from it if you have that in front of you to read. I will be projecting it, but... 
I do value being able to look at it myself. Uh, so a number of years ago, we used to live up in Chico, and there was one particular weekend when uh, my wife and, and family and I decided we were going to leave Chico, we were going to go down to Sacramento to visit a friend of Tiff's. And so we did the touristy thing. If you've ever, anyone ever been to Old Town Sacramento, it's kind of like the Pier 39 of Sacramento, right? It's like tourist shops and stuff, and it's got this old western theme and railroads, and they might even have some dirt streets, I don't remember. But it's pretty cool. It's a, it's a great chance to just walk around there on the riverside in Sacramento and have a good time. And so one of the shops there is this really big candy store. And they were doing that thing that Costco does, right? They're passing out free samples, although I lament the fact that Costco's pausing that right now during the coronavirus stuff. But they're passing out free samples. So there's this woman outside, and she's offering free chocolate-covered grasshoppers. Free chocolate-covered grasshoppers to anyone who wants one. And Peyton's like four years old. She's smiling right now. And she's like, man, chocolate? Like, I'm in. She hears it. She's all about what she just heard. So Tiff and I ask her, like, Peyton, are you, are you sure you want to eat a chocolate-covered grasshopper? And she's like, well, yeah, of course I do. And we're like, eh, it's not going to kill you. Okay. You know, enjoy the chocolate-covered grasshopper. So she takes it. She pops it in her mouth. She starts eating it. And she's a happy camper, man. She, she really, really enjoyed this chocolate-covered grasshopper. And we're like, Peyton, like, how was that? And she says, man, that was really, really good. But it was like, it was crunchy inside. Like, what, what's in there? And we're like... <laughs> That was, that was a grasshopper, you know, we, we told you. And, and right then, like, her eyes got big, and she, it, like, it hit her. Like, you mean that was a real grasshopper? And she was so mad at us for letting her eat that grasshopper. And we're like, Peyton, we told you exactly what that was. And like, what did you think you were eating? And she's like, I don't, like, it was candy. I just, I didn't think it was a real grasshopper. And as I, I thought about that over the years, I realized how confusing that must be for a kid. Because if I left here and I went to Baskin Robbins and I got myself a turtle sundae, I'd be expecting ice cream and caramel and chocolate and peanuts. At no time would I expect that turtles were actually part of that recipe, right? Like, like that's not okay, but suddenly the grasshopper actually is. So I can understand why she's confused and horrified. But she did like it. She did like it. So has anyone else tried to chocolate cover grasshopper before? Okay, you guys are braver than me. But the question I want you to consider this morning is, is why was Peyton horrified? Or maybe more importantly, why did Tiffany and I decline the free candy, right? <laughs> and the answer to that question, I think, is basically that what is inside was not matching what was outside. Now, what was inside that was a grasshopper, and I wouldn't make a habit of normally eating grasshoppers anyway, so it shouldn't come as a surprise that I declined a chocolate-covered one as well. But let's say it was garlic. Like, I love garlic, but how many people would really be interested in eating chocolate-covered garlic? It doesn't, it doesn't work very well. I mean, I might do it to, like, win a bet or something like that, but I'm not going to eat that by choice. I like brisket. I have no interest in eating chocolate-covered brisket <laughs> at all. John likes his brisket. He might. I don't know. But. <clears throat> but, church, part of what makes something edible is that what is inside has to match up well with what is outside. And not only should it match, but it should also be completely edible. Now, I was hoping someone would have brought donuts today because I wanted to use it as an object lesson. So bear with me here. How many of you like jelly or cream-filled donuts? Just a few hands? Okay, you guys are brave. Now, 
If I held up, imagine I'm holding this filled donut right now. And I said to you, this filled donut is almost completely edible. How many of you would want that donut? I mean, it's, it's almost completely edible. It's almost completely delicious. And nobody wants this donut? Nobody? Maybe if I was holding it and for real, I could give it to you, you would say yes. No, it, we, we don't want that completely edible donut. Now, I know if Corey was here, he would have been like, yeah, I'll take that edible donut right now and we'd have to have a moment. But <laughs> the inside should always match the outside, but the whole thing should also always be good, all of it, if we're going to consume it, if we're going to enjoy it, right? And so in today's text, we're, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 33. And I want to be honest with you about something. What I thought I was going to preach today is not what I'm actually going to preach today. Because the text is funny like that sometimes. You find a text and you spend 10, 15, 20 hours with it, and suddenly you realize that you've been understanding that text slightly wrong, maybe, all of these years. Uh, has that ever happened to you guys where you jump in and you go, man, that's not actually what I thought this text was saying all this time. And so I want you to read along with me. We're going to unpack this text. We're going to read verses 33 through 36 of Luke chapter 11. So Jesus is talking here, and this is what he says. He said, no one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body also is full of light. But when they're unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. So see to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. So part of the confusion of this text comes from the fact that Jesus makes comments about lamps and lights all throughout the Gospels. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, Michael was preaching the parable of the sower. And, and right there in Luke chapter 8, three verses or three chapters before this, Luke talks about nobody lighting lamps and putting them in jars or hiding them under beds. So it's easy to start confusing these things and blending them all together. And so whenever I read this text over the years, before this week, here's what I understood this text to mean. That the eye is like the window to the body. And so if I allow my eyes to see dark things, then my body or my person becomes dark. And if I allow myself to see light things or good things, then my body or my person becomes good in, in a metaphoric sense. And so what I would conclude from that was I need to guard my eyes from what they see and my ears from what they hear so that I'm not consuming things that would be harmful or not beneficial to me. Now, I still... I still believe that principle to be basically true. We absolutely should guard our eyes and our ears. But I want to be clear about this. That is not what this text is talking about. That's not what this text is saying at all. Because the key to understanding this text, I think, is twofold. There's two questions that we need to answer. Number one, how did Jewish readers understand the eye to work or function? And number two, what is happening in context? In other words, what's happening right before this and what's happening right after this? I think answering those two questions is critical. So let's ask the first one first. How did Jewish readers understand the eye to work and or function? And the answer to that question is, well, it, not the same that we often do. 
Uh, because you see, we've all grown up in a time where science has taught us that the eye is a receptor to light, right? That light comes from a source, maybe it's a sun, maybe it's a light bulb, maybe it's a flame of some kind that bounces off an object, goes into the eye, there's cones, there's rods, there's optical nerves in there that translate all that into an image that our brain perceives and bada bing, we have vision. And so when we think about the role of the eye, the eye is simply this passive recipient of light. And if we read this text through that perspective, I think we're much more likely to walk away from this text with the understanding or something kind of like what I just uh, described to you, that what enters the eye is what determines whether what is inside me is dark or is light. Everyone follow with me so far? Okay. But Jews understood the eye very, very differently. Uh, I know I've used Lord of the Rings uh, imagery before, and it just never ceases to amaze me how relevant Lord of the Rings can be when I'm looking for just that perfect sermon uh, illustration or analogy. But in Lord of the Rings, there's this ultimate bad guy. His name is Sauron, right? And he's this like disembodied evil force. And he's represented as, as something of an all-seeing eye. So off in the distance in this evil land of Mordor at the top of this tower is this flaming eyeball. And he looks and gazes upon the land, trying to find the ring. And so whenever Sauron would focus his attention on something, uh, especially in the movie, there would be this beam of light that comes from the eye and focuses on whatever he's looking on. Now, I would have always assumed that this was for effect in the movie. Like the, the movie wants us to see exactly what he's looking at. And it, it most likely was. But it's also, I think, eerily similar to how Jewish readers perceived the function of the eye. That in essence, Jewish readers understood the eye as not just something that receives light. It does that too, but also as something that emits a light of its own. Okay? And so if you've ever seen someone who, whose eyes seemed dead or lifeless, you ever seen a picture of someone and you're like, man, there's, there's like no life in that guy whatsoever. That, that's kind of the essence of what the Jewish reader would have been referring to. That there, there's, there's a life and a warmth to the human eye that we perceive that is somewhat intangible. It's just something that you sense. And the eye has an ability to communicate. Would we all agree with that? You can look at someone's eyes and you can read them. You can understand them just a little bit. And so when we read this text, I want, I want you to read it again. But I want you to read it with the understanding that the eye is now the light emitter and not the light recipient. So let's read it again. Because now when Jesus says in verse 33, no one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Now it becomes a little more clear why he's comparing a lamp to an eye and not a window. He says in verse 34, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body also is full of light. Notice, it's not that if your eyes are healthy, then subsequently your body is full of light. No, he says healthy eyes or literally generous eyes reflect a body that is full of light. And when they're unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. So again, unhealthy eyes are reflective of a whole body that is dark or unhealthy. And so he says in verse 35, see to it then that the light within you is not darkness. And therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it is dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. And so another way to kind of think of, of it is like this. Like if I drive by a house at night and the windows are full of light, that communicates something to me about that house. 
It tells me that there is life happening in that house. Life is seen by the light that is in the home. And that light shines out from the windows, and to some degree, it illuminates the outside world around it. And so Jesus is saying the eye is kind of like the same kind of thing. So, question here, what does all this talk about eyes and light and all this stuff have to do with this text? Like, what's the point of it all? Because these three verses are not just part of some isolated text that we need to struggle to understand. We need to recognize it as part of a broader text, a broader narrative that Jesus is talking about. So there's a relationship in the text between what is happening right before this and what is happening immediately after it. And we have to ask ourselves why Luke put these verses in this specific location if we're we're gonna understand it. We need to understand why this, why here, why now? And so the answer to that question, I believe, begins to unfold way back in verse 14. We're starting in 33, but I want you to go all the way back to verse 14, where we get this weird story about Jesus driving outside a demon that is inside a man who is mute. And so people are watching what's going on here. They're watching what Jesus is doing, and they begin to speculate that Jesus is only able to drive these demons outside because he has the power of the prince of demons inside, the power of Beelzebub, the power of Satan. And so they they essentially claim that it's the darkness inside Jesus that is allowing him to do good things on the outside. But Jesus is Jesus, and so he's able to kind of understand their thoughts without them ever being spoken. And so Jesus speaks up and he says, guys, any kingdom, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And a house divided against itself will fall. And so if Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? And I want you to think about this. What is Jesus claiming here? What is Jesus claiming? I think what he's trying to point out is that, is that if what is happening on the outside does not match what is happening on the inside, then it's like a kingdom that is divided against itself. It's like a civil war. In other words, it doesn't make any sense for Jesus to do the things that that bring light into the world if what is actually inside him is what? Darkness, right? That doesn't make any sense at all. And so in verse 27, uh, to continue this theme, a woman, she's been watching everything that goes on, and she speaks up and she calls out to Jesus and she says, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. And I want you to think about this. Do you see what she's doing? You see what she's assuming here. It's an acknowledgement of the goodness of what she's seeing. When she looks at Jesus, she sees good in Jesus. And being a woman, she understands what Jesus is saying in a way that I think men would often miss. Because where does she immediately go with it? She thinks to herself, well, if Jesus is good on the inside, he too must have come out of something that is good, right? And so I see good in you, so blessed is the woman who you came from, who gave you birth. And so Jesus listens to her, but he corrects her. He says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God on the outside and obey it on the inside. And so as the crowds increase around Jesus, he speaks to them. And he has some harsh words. He says, guys, this is a wicked generation. This generation asks for a sign. Where does the sign happen, church? Inside or outside? Outside. Outside. He says, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Okay, so what's the sign of Jonah? 
Well, Jonah was where? Inside the belly of a fish for three days and three nights before he came outside. So Jesus says, so also will the son of man be to this generation. So Jesus is giving a quick foreshadowing, a quick preview, a a quick nod to his death and his burial and his resurrection here that he, Jesus, will go inside the grave and after three days he will what? Come outside, right? And then Jesus mentions a couple of uh, groups of people. He mentions the queen of the south and he mentions the men of Nineveh. And he speaks of both of them standing at the judgment. And I I so appreciated what Michael had to say today during communion about standing under the weight of our own sin. Like who who could stand, right? And that's how, how Jesus is portraying the queen of the south and the men of Nineveh, people who can stand at the judgment. Why? It's because of what's happened inside of them. In other words, he portrays non Israelites who heard truth, who heard the word of God and repented who changed their lives as a result of it. And he's implying that those people will be saved, whereas those who ask for a sign will be condemned. Why? It's because the queen of the south and the men of Nineveh were more concerned with what happens where? On the inside, instead of the crowd who's asking for a sign, who's only concerned with what happens where? On the outside. And so now that you have some understanding of context here, I want to jump ahead to verse 37. Luke 11, verse 37, Jesus finishes what he's saying, all the talk about lights and lamps of the eye and so on. And he's immediately invited to a Pharisee's house. Now, a Pharisee is a a righteous, law-abiding Jewish man. And I want you to pay attention to the very first thing this man notices about Jesus when he comes to his house. Verse 38, But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. What is he concerned with? Again, he's concerned with what's happening on the outside. It's about perception. It's about perception. And Jesus is about to bring everything to a head. Jesus responds, Now then, you Pharisees, Clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. There's that word generous again. We read this in the very first section, right? Have have generous eyes. Verse 42, he says, Woe to you, Pharisees! You give God a tenth of your mint, a tenth of your rue, a tenth of of all other kinds of garden herbs. What's he talking about? Outside, what what can be perceived. But you neglect justice and the love of God. Where? Inside. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Where? Outside. Woe to you because inside you are like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing it. I mean, Jesus is saying you are dark, dead people on the inside regardless of what you show on the outside. I mean, this is really, really strong language. And so a lawyer speaks up and he says, Rabbi, teacher, when you say these things, 
You're insulting me too. You're insulting us also. And so Jesus replies, and you experts in the law, woe to you. Woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry on the outside. And you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Where? On the inside. He says, woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets on the outside. And it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They kill the prophets and you build their tombs. And so because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered inside, and you have hindered those who were entering. And then I love verse 53. Some NIV translations word it the way I want it, and some don't. But it says, when Jesus went where? outside. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely. Where are they opposing him? In the heart. And this imagery doesn't stop. We're going to stop. But it goes on for at least 12 more verses into chapter 12. It just keeps going and going. But I wanted you to be able to see this, this whole exchange and the seriousness with which Jesus addresses the condition of what happens on the outside versus what is happening on the inside of a person. So Tiff and I, we've been looking at a lot of houses lately. And one of the things that's interesting about Bay Area real estate, which you all well know, is when the Bay Area boomed, it kind of boomed surrounding World War II. And so they were just building all these houses really quick, really cheap, just trying to su supply the shipyards that were building ships, right? So these houses are like nothing special architecturally. And so on the outside, these things are ugly. They're cheap looking, they're ugly, but what's funny is there's a lot of money in this area. So you walk inside and what, what, what do you see on the inside of these houses? They're beautiful. They've all, almost all of them have been remodeled. And so there's this weird jarring uh, you know, tension between the outside of the house and the inside. You think about Disney's Beauty and the Beast. Any Beauty and the Beast fans? A few of us, yeah. Think about the Beast. Like, that's what the beast really is. If you look at the beginning of the movie, right, you have this, this handsome, wealthy, prince-like character who's supposed to be beautiful on the outside, but what's happening inside of him? The story tells us he's cruel and he's arrogant. And so what has he turned into as a result of that? He's turned into something that's, that's cruel and arrogant looking on the outside. He becomes the beast. Guys, the, the, the call from Jesus to the crowds in Luke 11 was a call to let your light shine from the inside out. Amen. Let your light shine from the inside out. It doesn't begin on the exterior. Mm -hmm. You don't paint your house and hire gardeners if the inside of your home looks like a trash heap. You don't do it. No one would, wouldn't make that investment. And so Jesus looked at these men claiming to be righteous, doing everything in their power to appear righteous. And his words are, are a sharp rebuke. He says, you guys look like unmarked graves. You look like unmarked graves. Guys, what happens inside us really, really matters. What is deep down in our heart matters so much. And all of us here, 
or most of us have known Christians who have done the right stuff, who've gone to church every week, knew all the right answers to, to the Bible study questions that were coming up, never missed a communion, gave money every week, and, and did all of that, but they were more concerned with how they were being seen, how they were being perceived, what was happening on the outside, than they were about being set apart and made holy right here on the inside. Does that make sense, church? Yeah. And so, church, I, I couldn't preach this text. I couldn't prepare this message and then drive by Colleen or walk by Pierre this week and, and pretend like I wasn't paying attention to anything I was studying. I couldn't do that with a clear conscience and then get up here on a Sunday morning and share a message with you. And I also cannot preach this text and tell you that I stopped and I helped them entirely for all the right reasons. I cannot tell you I did that. There were elements of guilt and obligation that compelled me to do the right things. There were parts of me that did it where? On the outside. Absolutely on the outside. And so when my inside wanted to just go home and like not deal with any of this, my outside was like, well, you, you kind of have to do like the Christian thing here, Josh. I stand guilty. I'm not above this. But you know what happened when I did? When I started to actually do the right thing? Some of that, that trash and that darkness and that garbage that's, that's deep inside of me started to get taken out little by little. And as I sat with hurting people, and as I heard their stories, obligation became compassion. Irritability became empathy. And so little by little, the light that was in me began shining from the inside out rather than trying to go from the outside in. Church, the call is to let your light shine from the inside first, then out. Guys, I've been around Christians long enough to see exactly what what Jesus is talking about. And and all of you have as well, because we sit in this room. Some Sundays we're not feeling it. Some Sundays we're not in the mood, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, but, But we're around people and we smile and we put on a good face and we say the nice thing and we offer up the compliment. And then what happens when nobody else is around? We offer up a scathing rebuke. We slander, we gossip, we tear down. Sometimes, sometimes, we show a beautifully kind and generous outside. While deep down, right here in the core, we're harboring this dark, rebellious, sinful person inside. And sometimes we even try to delude ourselves into thinking that we can manage keeping both in here at the same time. A little bit of light a little bit of darkness. I'll, I'll hold on to a little bit of that sin. That can stay there too. And it, it's, it's going to be offset because most of this is, is good. Jesus says in John 1.5 that the light shines in the darkness. Right. And the darkness has not overcome it. Light and darkness do not coexist, church. Amen. And so Jesus' words in Luke 11 call for us to be completely lighted. Say completely. 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 If I offered you a cream-filled donut and I told you this thing was almost completely edible, almost completely delicious, you would still turn it down. The Bible doesn't call us to be almost completely light. It says completely. It reminds me of Psalm 34, 8, where the psalmist says, taste and see that God is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Seeing something is only part of the equation. Seeing something is only ever about what? The outside. But man, when you taste something, when you taste something, you're experiencing everything that thing has to offer, inside, outside, all of it. There are two people who know you inside and out. You and God. That's it. 
And so if you invited God to taste and see the goodness in you, what would he taste? What would he see? Or maybe is there some chiseling that we need to let him do deep down in here? Some reshaping. Some, some, maybe something in us needs to be a little bit more malleable and needs to be formed and refined. And I'll be honest, I don't know how to make this message incredibly practical. Like I can just give you this one thing you need to go do this week that's going to take care of this. Because the reality is, I don't know what happens inside you. I don't know what happens inside your heart. It's something that only God knows. But you can go from this place. And you can go and spend some quiet time with God. And you can pray the prayer that King David prayed in Psalm 139. I think it was King David who wrote it. He says, search me, God, and know my heart. Search me and know my heart and test and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any offensive way where? Inside Inside me and lead me in the way everlasting. Church, we need to be willing to pause and look at what is inside our hearts. What's, What's deep down in there? Because we all know how to act like we walk the walk. We all know how to do the the, the acting part. But are we trying to live this life from the outside in where we just do the things that get noticed by others? Or are we living this life from the inside out where sometimes the only person who sees the goodness within you is God, where you get no notoriety, where you get no thank you, where you get no attaboy or attagirl? Are we doing that kind of life? Is it about him? Is it about serving him? About serving God? And so that's the question I want you to stop and consider today as you pray. I encourage you, go from this place today. Go spend some time in prayer and ask that question. What will it take to let your light shine from the inside out? And so church, we're getting ready to sing in just a moment. We're going to close out our message and go to God in song. But everything starts where? It starts here, inside, in the heart. And if the heart isn't right, I'm here to tell you the rest really doesn't matter. If the heart's not right, the rest doesn't matter. If what is inside you isn't light, there is nothing your hands and feet can do to produce it. The light shines from the inside out. Let your light shine from the inside out. And church, I don't know where you are in in your walk or your relationship with Christ today. But if you have not received Jesus, church, that starts on the inside. And it starts with a commitment. And I want to invite you to that. As we sing this song, if you would like to receive Jesus into your life, I want to invite you to that. We can, we can talk with you, we can pray with you, and we can baptize you into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you can receive everlasting life. And I invite you to that this morning. Baptism is not about the outside. It's about the inside. It's about the heart. It's about what God is doing in you. He has redeemed you. He is worthy of all praise. And you can have eternal life with Jesus. And I invite you to that. Let's stand and sing. Let your light shine from the inside out. This song is about inside out. And I encourage you to sing with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's praise God, church.